Welcome to Nightlight. In Revelation chapter 1, I want to read a familiar scripture to, to get us started today. And uh, all the many different directions we could go from this scripture, uh, there's so many issues here that we could spend the entire time together on, but I want to focus on just one particular aspect of John's encounter with Jesus. Let's just read it together here. And I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, verse 10, and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamos, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and gird about the chest with a golden girdle, his head and his hair was white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like flames of fire. And his feet like fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. And his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun, shining in its full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he laid his right hand upon me and said to me, Don't be afraid. I am the first. I am the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And look, I am alive forevermore. And have the keys of hell and of death. We find the Apostle John describing his encounter with Jesus in which John falls at his feet as dead. John has been emotionally speaking closer to Jesus while he was on earth than anyone else we know of. John was the one who the gospel tells us leaned on Jesus' breast at the Lord's table. He was the one Jesus seemed to confide in most closely. Yet here we find John so shaken at the presence of Jesus that his reaction seems to be one of great fear. Well, Jesus agrees that it's fear because he reaches toward John and lovingly lays his hand on his shoulder and says, don't be afraid. The picture is a great example of a proper balance in our understanding of how the love of God and the fear of the Lord are not opposition to one another, but they're the same thing. Can we pay close attention to the fact that John did not respond to the manifest presence of Jesus as Lord and King with anything of a flippant attitude? He, he didn't manifest a casual over-familiarity that might express itself as so many preachers do today. He didn't say, grace has removed every bit of any sense of fear that might be between me and you, Lord. It's all grace now. I can come boldly. Well, it is all grace now, and you can come boldly. And John knew that. He could come boldly into the presence of the Lord. But John would certainly warn the modern audience of some preachers today who imply that grace has removed all barriers between us, and it has, but who then communicate that in a, an attitude that not only has all barrier been removed, but all sense of awe and wonder and holiness and majesty and the need to properly respond to, to majesty with wonder and awe, that that's also been removed. It's all grace now. John knew it was all grace. But 
when he became face to face with the very presence of Jesus, even the closest person to Jesus from the earthly point of view fell at his feet like a dead man. So where will that put me and you? Yet Jesus reaches out and comforts John like a father comforts a trembling child, touches him, speaks a word of peace to him. Perfect love casts out all fear, John would write in 1 John chapter 4. But evidently, John, who is the author of those words, still found in himself he was not yet made perfect in love. So in the presence of such unmitigated holiness, he became so afraid he fell as dead. Now John sees Jesus in this encounter as judge. Everything in this picture speaks of Jesus as judge. His voice, like the trumpet, is a war trumpet, by the way. He announces he has come to set right all that is wrong. His robe is white. His hair is white also. These are the symbols of perfect wisdom and righteous judgment found also in Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 13, the vision of the Ancient of Days, whose eyes are like fire, whose hair is white like wool, and who's set, who is set uh, for the purpose of judging the nations. Now, his eyes are not mere lanterns of fire, but the idea is that of a stream of fiery, penetrating, searching light before which nothing can hide. The writer of Hebrews echoes this in chapter 4, verse 12, which many of us could quote, where he says, The word of God, which pierces to the very core and divides the joints from the marrow and the soul from the spirit, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and that all things are naked and open before the eyes of him with whom we have to deal. This searching of the thoughts and intentions of the heart is something I want us to spend uh, most of our time dealing with today. That sharp sword described by the writer of Hebrews is found here in Jesus' mouth. He's the Word. And John remembered Jesus saying when he was on earth in chapter 12, verse 48, the very word I have spoken will become their judgment at the last day. And then also in John 5, verse 23, the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, so that all may honor the Son as they honor the Father. Jesus' feet are like brass burning in a furnace. This imagery is taken directly out of the tabernacle, where the sin offerings were offered in the, the, the fire of the brazen altar. Brass is the repeated symbol throughout the uh, Hebrew scriptures of God's judgment against sin. Jesus here is seen as both the bringer of that judgment and the one who has entered that judgment and has the power to take it into himself because the implication of the picture here is that his feet have taken on the, the fire, uh, the, the nature of the fire, so that his feet not only manifest judgment but absorb judgment. So in all these images, there's a picture of both mercy and justice at the same time. His war trumpet voice is not only declaring war on evil, but is declaring war to deliver all those who love him. Listen to this description of the last martyr to die at the close of this age, written by Randy Alcorn in his excellent novel, Safely Home. It's a picture of the terrible persecution of the Chinese church. And uh, this this uh, portion I'm about to read is right at the very close of the novel. How long, O Lord, the voices of millions cried out. Because oppression of the weak and the groaning of the needy, I will now arise, said the king. I will rescue them. 
The king stood in front of his throne. His eyes and all those across the heavens were fixed now on the young locksmith from Pushan, who languished in prison, dying of tuberculosis, coughing up blood. As Li Xin's life faded, the king gripped the hilt of his sword, then unsheathed it. He lifted it up, stretching out his arm. He whistled to a white stallion, a creature unlike any other. It flew to him, dancing and snorting, rising up on back legs, eager to run to the battle. The king, shining with the brilliance of a thousand quasars, mounted. All heaven watched the young martyr breathe his last at the feet of his torturers. And at that moment, the warrior king, eyes wet and white hot, cried with a loud voice that shook heaven and earth, No longer! Michael threw his arm forward, the host of heaven shouted, and millions of horses gathered, mounted by warriors of every tribe and nation and tongue and people. Eternity's door swung open on its hinges. Out of one realm and into another rode an army like there has never been. The time has come, roared the king. Rescue my people, destroy my enemies. The morning star, who had once come as a lamb, now returned as a lion. With ten thousand galaxies forming the train of his imperial robe, as on the dark planet, the kingdoms of men began to melt at his presence, and the evil ones cried out for the rocks and mountains to fall on us and hide us from the anger of the Lamb. Blessed be his holy name. You need to bathe your imagination in that image until you have a strong grasp on it so that you and I can learn not to waste our energy being angry and railing and ranting and uh, being upset over the evil that men do because uh, our, our anger can't contribute one bit to his rage against it. His eyes are flames of fire, both searching out the wrong and lovingly embracing the object of his grace. His feet, like brass in a furnace, not only crush evil, but have endured the fire of judgment in order to be able to carry us across the flame to safety by the shedding of his own blood. His voice, like the roaring, terrifying waterfall that can crush everything in its path, says, John, don't be afraid, as he reaches out and touches him gently. You see this balance, this this showing both manifestations of the heart and character of God. I want to be careful not to imply that they are opposite to one another. They're not. They're, the, they're, they're coming from the same pure, integrous holiness. Now, where does the judge stand in this picture? Well, he stands in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. What are those lampstands? The text tells us in verse 20, they are the churches. Where does he, what does he hold in his right hand? Seven stars. What are they? The text tells us they are the seven messengers of those seven churches. Some might say they were the pastors, but they are certainly the spokespersons or the, the, the sources of the message of God to those particular churches. What is the message here? The same one who hates sin and will destroy it out of the universe loves you with a fierceness of holy passion that will not rest until you are free from all the effects of sin and evil. It is not a dichotomy of love on the one hand and judgment on the other. The love will manifest the judgment. The passion that burns as fiery brass against evil burns in passionate desire for you and me. There's no sense of our needing to keep on repenting and repenting over and over and trying to do better and promising to amend our ways 
it's not a, a mixed message of confusion here that says, <clears throat> it's all by my grace, but you better behave and do right or else I'll come and destroy you for your sin. And that's the way so many of us misunderstand it. That's the way we tend to read it. <clears throat> but neither is it a message that says, Grace covers all your sins, so there's no need to deal with that subject ever again. Just walk on remembering that you're under God's grace, and it will cover you no matter what happens. What makes this difficult for many of us to understand is that grace does cover us, does keep us, does make us fully and completely accepted. And it is only grace that can do that. No work on our part, no reparation, per se, no act of self-denial or self-abasement can add to grace, and no failure on our part can take away from grace. Yet, there is constant misunderstanding on both sides of this issue. Some people think they must constantly be in a state of mind of self-examination to the point that they live in a place of constant insecurity and fear and self-condemnation. And it's not the wholesome life of giving uh, honor to the Lord that it, the Bible understands as the fear of the Lord that Scripture refers to so often. No, it's a tormenting fear. The kind John tells us in 1 John 4 is due to a, a failure to understand love. On the other hand, there are those who treat this message of grace as a license to live carelessly, even sinfully, with no sense of any correction ever coming on them because they say they are not under law but under grace, and who treat God's very presence flippantly and casually and even blasphemously. And in extreme cases, thankfully they are just extreme cases, there are those who, uh, like the ones who confronted and resisted the ministry of John Wesley, who were called the antinomians, those who were lawless, absolutely so so claiming grace that they didn't have to obey the, the scriptures. And so they lived in immorality and stole and cursed and caroused and said grace covered it. And Paul refers to this, doesn't he, in Romans. Can sin, does sin increase so that grace may abound? No. And so we get these strange re misunderstandings on both sides. As usual, the truth is somewhere other than these two extremes. His love so burns in the heart of the worshipers of Jesus that that in itself is repentance. You don't keep repenting and keep repenting and keep repenting. As one person said to me in the church she grew up in, how did you ever know when you'd really repented? Every Sunday we were browbeat with messages on the wickedness and evil of backslidden Israel and how the church was no different and you better repent. And all these dire warnings and terrifying pictures were painted from the pulpit. And so we were always, always, always repenting. It's a refusal of the relationship with God because we love some idol in his place that brings its own destruction. So his grace not only initiates our salvation, but maintains the force necessary to bring us fully into full union with him. Grace comes after us, saves us, and keeps us. How does it keep us? Well, among other things, with loving, corrective dealings of the Holy Spirit that are ruthlessly set on delivering us in true experience of life from that which he has delivered us from legally in position. In other words, we're forgiven positionally, legally, and then God begins to bring about the fulfillment of that in our actual experience of life. Now, um, I don't think that should be hard for us to understand. 
and yet I, I meet so many people that really don't understand it. And so what we're saying is that God has forgiven you legally, yes. And how did, why did he do it? Because of his great love for you. Now that same great love for you will now go after the aspects of your character and life that are out of line with his character and life so that what you have legally eventually becomes what you truly are in your experience. Does that make sense? Now, anything else is a sham. Well, God, God's grace covers my sin, but I just keep on sinning. And then you hear all these statements by different people from different denominational backgrounds, depending on their points of view of their background. They they say, well, you know, you, you, you can't help but sin. Everybody sins a little bit every day. <clears throat> and, uh, well, I mean, that, that's true, I guess. But it's like the little boy who asked his dad, Dad, can you go all day without sinning? And his dad said, no. And he said, well, do, can you go an hour without sinning? He said, well, I don't know. I guess no. He said, well, can you go a minute without sinning? He said, well, yeah, I guess you could do that. He said, Dad, why can't you live minute by minute then? <laughs> I know that's a little simplistic, but the fact is we've almost turned the message of grace into an, ex an excuse for sin to keep on growing. And the scripture doesn't support that at all. John actually says not when you sin, but if you sin. You have an advocate with the Father in First John chapter 2, if you sin. The idea here is that as you walk with him and draw near to him and grow in love for him, your, your capacity for sin is constantly diminishing and your capacity for holiness is always increasing, not by keeping some set of rules, which is impossible, but by relationship, by union by manifesting uh, his character through your character out of union. So God has loving, corrective dealings by his spirit that he ruthlessly sets in motion So, uh, for, for the purpose of delivering us in our daily experiential life from that which grace has shielded us from in our legal position. In other words, grace treats us as if we are fully free of all sin, then sets itself to make that legal position really true in our character and lifestyle. Titus chapter 2, verse 1 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared to all people. And what does grace do? <clears throat> Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we are to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify for himself, his own special people, whose desire is to do what is good. So there's two actions here. You hear that in the wonderful lyrics of Rock of Ages. Be of sin the double cure, save from wrath, and make me pure. Or one altered translation of that verse says, save me from its guilt and power. That's right. You're saved first from its guilt, then from its power. <clears throat> so this impotent kind of Christianity that, that teaches grace as being nothing but a Band-Aid that covers a continuing suppurating infection is not much of a salvation. I mean, don't get me wrong, if that's all we had was forgiveness and uh, freedom from the wrath to come, I'm not 
belittling that, but that's not what Jesus said. It's not what the scripture said, and it's not what Jesus went through, what he went through to purchase for us. He came to deliver us from the penalty of sin and then to deliver us from the very power of sin, to transform us. The reason I'm stressing this right now is the impotence, the impotence of this church era we're in, this church, uh, uh, this time in church history, where we're so weak and powerless and so covered up with the, the, the uh, leper's cloth of the, of the world, wearing our, our leper uniforms and claiming that we're the church. We, we're, we have no power to deliver our, us or anybody else. And so more and more of the church just says, well, look, we just figure that the, the love of God just uh, makes the leprosy something that he meant all of us to just embrace. You know, we can't deliver you from homosexuality. We'll just declare it to be normal all along. God was just, uh, God was just joking. That's just one example. Many, many other examples. You just, you just name the various aspects of weakness and brokenness and failure and corruption of the human experience that, that some part of the church somewhere has tried to excuse and even sanctify. Well, we do this because we don't know the gospel and we don't preach the gospel. So now, based on what, what I'm telling you here from Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 14, we understand now, I hope, that God does love us and that love means not overlooking our sin like a doting old sentimental sot, but like a passionate lover loves, as George MacDonald put it, and I'm paraphrasing, he loves us so much that he is passionate to destroy out of us all that cannot be loved so that he might love us more and more. In other words, love will destroy all that is in opposition to itself, so there is therefore no contradiction in the two chapters of Revelation where Jesus addresses the seven churches. Where he affirms them, he means it as a word of love. And where he rebukes them, he means it also just as much as words of love. This is exactly in line with Hebrews chapter 12, where he, quote, chastens those that he loves. Now, surely any of us who have ever loved a child or a teenager understands this. When you seek to guide him or her in the right direction, you understand that love uh, sometimes seems harsh at the time of the correction. But it evidently, eventually, will yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness, Hebrews 12 goes on to say. So, having said all that, now we come back to Revelation chapter 2. And let's take a look, just one look. Uh, we, we don't have time to look at all seven churches, of course, but I want to particularly focus on this church of uh, chapter 2, verses 18 through 23, where Jesus is speaking words that don't sound very comforting unless you understand the things we've been talking about so far. Listen to what he says to the church at Thyatira. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, whose eyes are like a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. See, here's these two images of both judgment and, and love. And again, I'm not making a differentiation between the two. They're, they're one and the same. I know your works, your charity, your service, and your faith, and your patience, your endurance, and your works. He says, he speaks of the works twice. And the last to be greater than the first. Even so, that being said, and Jesus begins affirming and blessing what's right, I have a few things against you because you suffer that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess 
to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she did not repent. Therefore, I will cast her into, the King James Version says, a bed. That's a terrible translation. The word here is not bed. It doesn't make any sense that he cast her into a bed. The word is grave. I will cast her into a grave. Unless you want to interpret the word bed as a sick bed leading to a grave. I will cast her into a, a, a bed of affliction or sickness leading to death. And those that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her offspring with death. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the reins and the heart. And I will give to you every one of you according to your works. Now, when it says that Jesus is uh, going to search the reins and the heart, <clears throat> this is translated in most of your more modern tr versions like the NIV and New American Standard and various others as uh, the heart and the mind. I search the heart and the mind, or some others will say I search the inner being. And, and those are okay, but there's something about this term reigns that is closer to the Greek text and therefore closer to the symbolic meaning that was uh, implied here. You know, ancient literature did not have a lot of words, obviously. They, had a lot of, they didn't have a lot of psychological terminology to describe the unconscious or the you know, the, the, the deep, hidden, psychological, dark places in us. And we've got all these different terms now after years and years of psychoanalysis and offshoots of various psychological schools of thought. Peter talks about the hidden man of the heart. All through the Old Covenant, There there's uh, terminology that refers to the heart or the belly. That's one that people don't use quite often or don't understand. You know, Jesus said, out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. When the Bible talks about the heart, we get confused about that. Do, do we, th we know he's not talking about the blood pump necessarily, but, uh, you know, we, we think he's talking about the emotions because we talk about having our heart broken. And usually when we use the term heartbreak, we're, we're, not speaking accurately, we usually mean we just have been emotionally hurt. A really broken heart is a broken spirit, and a person with a truly broken heart uh, is is damaged, uh, deeply damaged. Uh, Proverbs says, uh, "He who has a broken and contrite, a broken spirit, uh, is is unable to recover from it without intervention." But uh, when Jesus talks about searching the deep reins, deep part of the heart, this has to do with the Lord going after not just bad behavior, but the meaning behind the behavior, the reasons the behavior has grown into the tree of poison that it's grown into. He goes after the roots. You know, we, we refer to roots of bitterness. Deuteronomy chapter 29, Hebrews chapter 12 borrows that phrase, roots of bitterness, and getting to the root issue of things. So, uh, you see, we, we don't seem to grasp the terrible sinfulness of sin. The enemy has done a sadly good propaganda job on the word sin so that culturally now we look at this word sin as an outdated quaint reference to people behaving in a way that prudes and overly prim and proper people are embarrassed by. And that means, of course, that the cool, hip, with it people 
uh, are not embarrassed by it. In fact, they seem to take great pleasure in it and celebrate it. But what does the word sin actually mean? Yes, of course, it means to miss the mark. We all know that. Referring to an arrow that misses its target. That's what it means in both Hebrew and Greek. But if we hear that simplistic definition, then we still miss the mark of understanding what it really means. And that shallow response is dangerous because it's it's not dangerous because God will get you for sinning. It's dangerous because God's divine order is the only reality. And sin is a refusal to live in line with reality. Now, when we, when we see people who don't live in reality, we call them crazy. And sin is insane. But we have managed with the manipulation of devilish deception to actually treat sin as normal and righteousness as uh, abnormal. Now, if you think God can just sit back and let that happen without responding, then, of course, you, you don't think that. I know you don't. Um, so God's painful chastisement is the most loving thing he can do in response to willful sin, willfully sinning, willfully living outside the reality that he alone has defined and can define. That that much seems to be very basic and clear to me, yet it doesn't seem to be clear to lots of people. Claiming grace has delivered all believers from all ramifications of willful sin in hopes of making God more PR-friendly and that God is indifferent to sin does not have the liberating effect it might have been meant to create when they started teaching that kind of stuff. I don't think I want to worship a God who is indifferent to evil. I take great comfort in knowing he hates evil and will destroy it, not only out of the universe, but out of me. Not destroy me, but destroy it out of me. That he's loving enough to bring correction wherever I might need it in my life is a comforting thing. It didn't didn't feel comfortable when I was younger. It felt intrusive. That just showed how much I needed deliverance from it. Now I, I'm I'm grateful for it. I embrace it. How terrible to think of being left only to my own self-estimations. That's all I had to go by. Oh, my gosh. So when we read these verses in Revelation 2, which make it a point to focus on the eyes that search and the fiery feet like bronze, We need to remember the two facts that these symbols focus on. He searches out everything that is in need of correction with the same eyes with which he lovingly looks at us. And that his feet not only bring a just end of sin, but trample its power and make a way for us to be carried out of it. I've said that already several times, but I like like to hear it myself. Now, in verse 19, uh, there's, you know, he, he commends the church at Thyatira for the good that, that they've done. In verse 20, it's necessarily a confrontation with a growing danger among them. It has to do with false prophecy and with an accompanying sexual sin. And just an aside here, wherever there's false prophecy, there seems to almost always be sexual sin mixed in with it for reasons I won't go into now. In verse 22, I will cast her into a a bed leading to a grave. Verse 23, I will kill her offspring. The fruit of her ministry and life is going to be not life but death. And all the churches are going to know that I didn't just sit back and let it happen. Then he says, I will search the reins and the hearts. And he says, in other words, I'm going to go to the root of this. I'm, I'm, I'm not just going to address the behavior and say, naughty, naughty, you shouldn't break the rules. That's the, the, of course, we're not under law. See, if we were under law, 
it would just be a matter of of uh, obeying the outward rules, and uh, that would slide by. Now, thankfully, Jesus says, you know, you're not under law, you're under grace. And guess what? Grace doesn't just check to see if you've kept the rules. Grace goes to the heart of the matter to find out what your desires and motives are. Now, that shouldn't terrify you. It should comfort you. How many things in my life have I come face to face with where I I realized, you know, I'm only doing this for X, Y, Z reasons. I'm not doing this because of love. I'm not doing this because I love God or because I love people. I'm doing this for some other reason. It was a it was painful to face, but it was also comforting that I, I was able to have it exposed so I could have it expunged out of my life. Now, I've already mentioned that ancient languages didn't have any vocabulary for deep inner workings of the soul. Uses of the word like heart or belly, I've mentioned before, obviously don't refer to the blood pump or the digestive system. Now, the the word reins is actually the word for kidneys. Rain, renal, we speak of renal failure, we talk about kidney failure. Uh, the reins, the kidneys. Why? Why? What's he? Ta- why is it using the word kidneys? Well, the ancients saw the heart as the core and the belly as the center of negative emotions, and they saw the kidneys as a physical representation of the most hidden inner issues of a person. By the way, we don't have time here to go into it, but let me just say that recent research in the last ten years or so does affirm that the body parts do participate on a much stronger emotional level than former shallow modern viewpoints allowed for. A major example uh, is in my own life in reference to the kidneys. Uh, The kidneys were seen in ancient times as a place of the deepest most intimate aspect of the core of a person. Uh, because the kidneys were two, they're two separate parts of one organ function, they saw it as a, the place in the inner being that uh, dealt with opposites, right and wrong, uh, masculine and feminine. And uh, let me just read to you here part of uh, what both Chinese medicine and other ancient Middle Eastern medicine said about the kidneys. It says the kidneys work hard at maintaining an acid-alkaline balance in the blood. This essentially is for the balancing of opposites, hot and cold, right and wrong, masculine and feminine, symbolized by the two kidneys in relation to each other. Issues here are especially connected with relationships in a variety of ways. They can be with our primary partner or with or between the masculine and feminine aspects inside our own souls. The kidneys are also involved in the production of red blood cells, indicating their relationship to generating love through our being. The natural questions are uh, as follows. What are the imbalances and the sources of repressed anger or fear in your life? What might be uh, sexual or emotional broken areas that have been internalized that you're not able to process properly? Kidney problems are particularly concerned with issues related to fear with a focus on relationships such as unexpressed grief or emotional insecurity. Things like kidney stones are unshed tears that have become solidified. Well, that fits me to a T. And uh, I've, I've had uh, kidney struggles since I was 25 years old. Uh, they all began uh, when the journey of my own healing concerning uh, emotional and sexual wounds began. And you could chart the progress of my own healing 
and my struggles in physical uh, battles uh, paralleled with it. And that's too long to get into. I'm just saying right now that uh, my medical science and uh, psychological research and ancient medical wisdom has come together in various fields of inquiry to affirm the fact that much of what we previously assumed was just nothing more than the ignorance of a bygone age had a lot of truth that we needed to face and uh, incorporate in how we minister to these issues. And so when Jesus says here to this church of Thyatira, I'm, I'm searching your kidneys. What else what else do we know about the kidneys? Well, we know that it's uh, the, the instrument of purging, of cleansing, of filtering, of purifying. This has to do with how purely your inner life is being uh, kept. Do you have a secret inner fantasy life of impurity? Or are you harboring a secret, unconscious, but still very present fantasy of revenge one day toward one who has hurt you or injured you or wronged you? Are you harboring an anger that you like to bring up and nurse now and then? Or have you allowed it to be purged out? Do you have uh, some psychosexual conflict going on in your inner life that maybe you've brought it to, to correction publicly? But Jesus says, I'm not just interested in what's going on outwardly. I'm not a hypocrite, and I'm not going to let you be a hypocrite. I'm not just going to deal with the outward behavior. I'm going to the heart of the matter. And in the heart of the matter... I'm going to deal with the purity or impurity of your deepest, most private, most intimate parts of your being. And then uh, he goes on to say to the church at Thyatira, he says, but for the rest of you who are walking with me in truth and reality, he says in verse 24, um, but to you, I say, to the rest in Thyatira, and as many as have, have not been operating this way, in this, this falseness, which have not known the depths of Satan. Uh, I wish I had time to go into some of these t phrases that are so full of potential and so mysterious to us. But I think in this one case, he's talking here about the, the depths of Satan being uh, an area where the enemy has been able to weave his way in and counterfeit the real work of God in a way that causes shallow people who are not living in reality to be duped. And uh, that's all I'll be able to say about that. But uh, it, it, this really speaks to some of the present struggles we have in parts of the body of Christ in various parts of the world with this mixture, this mixture of, of uh, that which is really from the Lord but being mixed with the psychic and the soulish and even the demonic. And, of course, we've referred previously to what James tells us about bitter water and sweet water should not be coming out of the same fountain, but they are. And he says this wisdom uh, is not from above. The wisdom which is from above is peaceable and gentle, and easy to be entreated and full of good works. But this wisdom which is from below is earthly, soulish, and demonic. Uh, and, and he says that there's a kind of wisdom, pseudo-wisdom, false, false manifestations, false operations of seemingly spiritual gifts, but they're not really spiritual gifts. They have a psychic root, and they, they have a, a quite often a, 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 an erotic, emotional, uh, idolatrous root to them quite often. And uh, the, he says, these things, I'm going to root them out. I'm going to bring them into the light for the healing of those who repent 
and for judgment to those who, who don't, who want to embrace it. And then he says, I'll put no other burden on you but, but that one that's already upon you, and that is that you hold fast till I come. He that overcomes and keeps my works to the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and the vessels of a potter shall be broken to shivers. Even as I received of my Father, I will give him the morning star. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He says, to the one who overcomes this level of idolatry, and this kind of deep inner uh, broken uh, mixture to the one who's willing to let me delve that deeply into their hearts. See, he's not saying these people are lost. He's not saying they're going to go to hell. He's, I mean, some may disagree with me and think I'm speaking greasy grace when I say uh, there's nothing in here that implies that these these people who are coming under judgment are coming under eternal judgment or damnation. He's just telling them what's going to happen in their present circumstance and how it's all going to unfold if they don't yield to him. I mean, if, you, if you've got a man in First Corinthians uh, who is living in sexual sin with his father's wife, for heaven's sakes, and he won't repent, and Paul says he's going to turn him over to his flesh so uh, his soul Turn, turn, turn the man's flesh over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so his soul will be saved, then I don't think these people here in Revelation 2 are going to be damned forever. They're just going to lose out with everything that they were intending to be predestined to fulfill. And so he says, but to those of you who, who let me deal with this kind of stuff on this level, I'm going to cause you to be able to do what I do, you're going to be so in union with me. He actually uses terminology that he only used for himself. He's the one who's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. He's the one who's going to dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. He's the one who's going to sit on the throne. But he says, if you if you walk with me, you'll sit with me in my throne as I overcame and sat with my father in his throne. You will rule the nations with a rod of iron. You will dash them in pieces. He's saying... When, when I come to establish the fullness of my kingdom on the earth and the nations of the earth, you will judge the nations. Why? Because you've been so faithful to let me deal with your un, unfaithfulness and your un, instability and your inconsistencies and your lack of discernment and, and wrong ways of thinking. You've been so faithful to let me be faithful to you in the cleansing of those things that you will emerge out of that being one to whom I can give the morning star. I don't know what that means, but I sure do want it. I mean, I've, I've read all kinds of ideas of what that means. You know, I will give him the morning star. Does it mean I'll give him the place that Lucifer gave away when he rebelled? Uh, some people say that. I don't know. Does it mean I'll give him the, the supernatural light rising out of darkness that brings the morning? Yeah, well, that's what the morning star does. I don't know what it means. doesn't matter to me. Uh, but whatever it is, if it comes from Jesus and he wants to give it to me as a, a, a reward for having let him deal with the deepest, 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 most embarrassing, most hidden, most hard-to-face aspects of my character— so that he can have full sway with me and I can be in full union with him. If he wants to give me the morning star, I will sure receive it. Now, in the few minutes we've got left, think with me now in light, the light of this, uh, that when Jesus says in this verse that he searches the 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 reins, the kidneys, this filtering process, this cleansing process. And he says, look, I'm, I'm not just critiquing your behavior. I'm dealing with the, the motives behind the behavior and even the motives behind the motives. 
Go deep into the core reasons behind your outward behavior and know by direct examination what is really motivating you. Then you understand what David was talking about in Psalm 26 where he says, Lord, examine me, prove me, try my reins and my heart. You know, uh, when, when the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart, some people stumble over that declaration. I can kind of understand why they might stumble over it. I mean, David disobeyed the Lord in many areas. He disobeyed the Lord, especially in the multiplying of wives. He disobeyed the Lord, obviously, horribly, with Bathsheba. And, and yet, how, how is David a man after God's own heart? Here's how. Examine me, Lord. Prove me. Go into the depths. Go down into the kidneys. Check, check me out. See, see what's going on inside me. Psalm 19, he says the same thing. Search me and try me and know my ways and see if there's any wicked way in me and, and, and correct me. He's, See, unlike Saul, Saul never committed adultery, far as we know. Saul never murdered a man so he could steal his wife, for heaven's sakes. For, I mean, if you if you really check it out, Saul would be a good member in, in good standing in most any evangelical church, while David would have been kicked out on a dozen different charges. Saul ends up rejected as king while David is celebrated as the man who is after God's own heart. Why? Because of this one desperate, desperate desire that God would search him and try him and know him in the core of his being. Psalm, uh, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 27 says, The spirit of a man is the lamp of the Lord which the Lord searches all the deepest hidden parts of our inner being. So what I want to leave us with today is this one basic thought. Those who claim that grace covers all of our sin and we don't have to worry about sin anymore speak of the legal position that we have because of the shed blood of the Lord Jesus. I, I'm, not, I'm not arguing against that legal position. I'm just saying, and, and many of these teachers of grace would fully agree with what I'm saying. I mean, we're not contradicting each other. It's just the misunderstanding that I'm addressing, which is not the guilt of some of these teachers. It's just the human heart is always looking for a way to keep sinning and still get away with it. It's, it's the love relationship, it's the union, it's the bond between us and Jesus that brings us out of sin. That in itself is the fullness of repentance. I mean, if you're loving Jesus and seeking for him with all you know how, you don't need to be repenting, repenting, repenting. That, that's really true. Well, when Jesus is calling these people in Revelations chapters 2 and 3 to repentance, he's saying, look, turn around, change your way of thinking, come back to your right mind. Come back to, to your true self. Return to your first love, the springtime of your experience with me, the love bond that we had together. Come back to that. If you are seeking that, automatically all other issues are set right in the process. But if it's just a matter of feeling bad about yourself and beating yourself up because of that and then wanting to do better by making some kind of empty promise to God that you're going to do better, well, that is coming under the law. That is legalism. But if you're saying, like David said so often in the Psalms and other psalmists, my heart longs for you, my soul cries for you in a dry, thirsty land where there is no water, that's, that's what he's looking for. Are you starving for his presence, starving for his reality, starving for him? He's not playing games with us. He's not holding a carrot out, so we have to keep jumping higher and higher to, to, 
nibble it and then pulling it out of our reach. That's not it. It's that he, he draws us further up and further in by allowing the true condition of our present world to become so noxious to us that, that it awakens us out of our stupor and causes us to pursue him with all we know how. Father, only you can make this make sense to those who are trying to understand it. Please, Lord, communicate what you intended it to be. And uh, forgive me, Lord, where I might have failed to speak it clearly. But I pray, Lord, that you will search the depths of our hearts and purge out of us any way that is not real and not right. Not so we can feel better about how good we're keeping the law but so that we can come more deeply into union with you. Thank you, Father. Amen. Thanks for listening. God bless. Talk to you next time, Lord willing.